If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. title of the message this morning is Judgment Defended, and uh, I hesitate saying this, it's going to be a shorter message. Every time I've ever said that, it turns out to be longer, and, uh, but I promise I won't let that happen today. Um, I'm kind of setting the stage a little bit. Everyone seems to be really familiar with about the first third of the book of Romans past. Uh, not so, so much familiar with the first few chapters, but it seems like you get past it, everyone seems to be a little bit more familiar with it. So we're kind of been building up over these last couple of weeks as we're getting into the middle of the, or the beginning of the book of Romans here. But last week we saw that everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, are under the same judgment. The Jews thought that because they had the law, because that they had gone through circumcision, that somehow they were going to maybe get special treatment or maybe not as harsh a judgment, a little bit you know lesser judgment. But what they so often failed to understand that was... The outward law and the circumcision was worthless apart from having a right heart attitude. Uh, the heart condition was really what mattered and what God is, really looks at, looks for in, in us as well. And with this in mind, Paul essentially placed the Jews and Gentiles on equal ground. And the Jews objected to this idea. In fact, the Jews basically gave three objections we're going to look at in just a moment. But there's no way they thought we could be on the same level playing field. But Paul was not trying to compare them with where they were in the sight of God's eyes as far as being the chosen people. As much as their condition, they're still sinners in need of a Savior. And so uh, as we look at this, if you would, follow along as I read the first eight verses of chapter 3. And then we'll begin to look at some of these objections that the Jews had and what Paul uh, gave them as a um, response. So verse 1 says, What advantage then has the Jew... Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou may be justified in your words, and may be overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Lord, I ask God that you would illuminate the scriptures to us this morning. I pray, God, that we may be able to uh, properly apply what, we were, what we're learning. That, Lord, that we may be more like you and draw closer to you. I pray, God, that you just meet with us this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, the Jews objected to the idea that the Jews and Gentiles were on the same playing field. And they basically have three objections to this. And the first one is found in verse 1. And right away he says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? So they're saying, if we're on the same playing field, then what's the, what's the advantage? I mean, why do we go, why did we receive the law? Why do we go through circumcision if there is, in fact, no advantage? And so, uh, if, if there's no, if there is no advantage, why do we bother with it? So, well, there might be an assumption that the Jews has no advantage, but that would be wrong. 
And Paul was not trying to prove equality between the Jews and the Gentiles. Equality has never been the issue. But rather, the guilt of both groups demanded the same justification. It doesn't matter whether they're Jew or Gentile. As God saw it, they're both under the law. They're both, uh, or excuse me, under sin, and both had to pay a price in judgment for that sin. But we know that as we've been reading throughout the book of Romans, chapter 1 and 2, that God is going to judge justly and fairly to all. So it was not an issue of equality as much as the idea that both are under the same judgment. But Paul gave a response to them. He said the Jews do have an advantage in every way, much in every way. In fact, if you keep your finger there in in Romans chapter 3 and turn over to Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, it says this. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Basically, what he was saying this is there is a great advantage. They were God's people. They're the apple of God's eye. So he said, I'm not trying to make it of no effect. I'm not trying to say that there is no advantage. It's not the issue of equality. It's the issue of judgment. They're all under the same judgment. And if you look at Psalm chapter 147, verses 19 and 20, the reality is that the Jews were given the very words of God. No Gentiles were given that at first. The Jews were given that. They were given the first opportunity to know and to understand what God's law was. So the reality is it wasn't equality as much as understanding that you're both under the law. So that was the first objection that they gave in verse 1. And he says back in verse 2, Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They were first given the word. Then in verse 3, they give a second objection to Paul's teaching here. And verse 3 says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So somehow Paul's doctrine of condemnation voids the promises? Well, if some don't believe, so what? Does the lack of some nullify the faith found in others? Absolutely not. And it's amazing how that even rings true in our hearts and in our lives in the world that we live in. There are those all around us, some believe, some do not. And just because they don't believe or don't want to put their trust in God, does that nullify those of us who have? No. And it's amazing how often that we come to the conclusion that, well, I believe, but there's just other people who aren't going to believe, and that's just up to them and God. Um, Just this last week, in fact, it was yesterday, I had the opportunity to talk with somebody whose spouse went through a very difficult year. And in the process of this very difficult year, their health had really began to slip. And the reality was this. They couldn't walk, hadn't walked in over a year almost. Their sight had become difficult to use. Their eyesight had become very difficult to, uh, to see. Um, their hand cord- hand-eye coordination wasn't working. They, they couldn't just pick up something and put it in, put it in the, where it was supposed to be in, in the, in the uh, exercises of their therapy. And, and it just seemed like from every outer circumstance, things were not looking good. And the gentleman looks at me and goes, but I have complete faith that God is at work, that God is going to bring healing. Everyone around him looked at him and said, Sir, I don't want you to, to, you know, to, to get upset with me, but you really need to understand things are not going to get better. Things are not going to get better. In fact, things are probably going to get worse. And he looked right back at them and says, well, I believe that God is going to bring healing. 
And they said, but I want you to understand that if you keep going this direction, you're going to set yourself up for major disappointment. Yesterday when he came by my house and talked about what God was doing, last Monday, not only did his wife get up and walk, they had her walking up and down stairs. The hand-eye coordination that has not been there for months, she's able to pick up some uh, clothespins and put them over in, uh, on, and clip them on the board using her hand that, on the side that had the stroke. And not only that, as they gave her something to read, she said, if I put it up close, I can begin to read it. And I haven't read in months. Hadn't been able to read in months. So after a year and a half of being in physical therapy at a, at a home, God was beginning to work. And come back to this idea, just because some don't have faith, just because some don't believe, and I know we're talking about in, the, in, in God, but the reality is, does that nullify the faith of others? No. Because the reality is that God does work. That God is faith. And just because you don't believe doesn't mean that, that it's not going to happen. And just because you don't believe doesn't mean it's not so. The faith of God that He gives us is great. And He gives to all of us that measure of faith. And to some it's going to grow and to some it's not. So the objection is somehow Paul's doctrine of condemnation voids God's promises. Paul's response, and he gives three. First of all, he says in verse 4, certainly not. That's a powerful phrase. We don't get the power of it in our English translation, but he's like basically saying, no, that's not the case. He is screaming out this phrase, certainly not. Just because you don't believe doesn't make it not so. Just the opposite. You ought to believe all the more. Certainly not. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And those of you that believe, you're going to see God's hand at work. And those of you that don't, hopefully you will see. He gives a second response. He says, indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Well, isn't that still true today? If it comes down to two opinions, two views of things... Shouldn't we trust God over man? Oh, thank you. I was making sure you're still with me. So, yeah, absolutely. We should trust God. And that's what he's trying to help these Jewish folks understand. He says, let God be true, but every man a liar. So he says, I want you to trust God in what His Word says, not what man may think and what he may believe. Man bases everything off his own opinions, his own preferences, his own experiences, his own thoughts, his own feelings. But when we have a more sure word, God's word says, this is what we base our, feel, our, 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 our knowledge off of, is off this. So the reality is, we need to trust God and let every man be a liar when it comes to God's word. And then number three, Paul's quote from the Old Testament declared God's righteousness over man's sinfulness. When you look at Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, that is the heart of David as he was in sin, as he was repenting. In fact, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. The whole idea here is just even though I am guilty and deserving, God gives grace. God gives mercy. Even at his worst, when he deserved to be judged, God judged him justly and punished him justly. And that's one of the beautiful things about walking with God is that he's a patient God. When we look at the life of Paul, Paul said, and we've, we've argued this point over and over, 
Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Think about this just for a moment. If you're a born-again believer, you have faith in Jesus Christ, you ought to argue that point. And you ought to say, I am. Put your name in there. I will argue that point till the day I die, that Paul is not the chiefest of sinners. I am. I understand that God says all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And to think that we are something when we are nothing, we ought to argue with Paul that we are the chiefest of sinners. But one thing I've said for years that I'm eternally grateful for, and I will be eternally grateful for, is that God is a God of mercy and grace. That He is the word long-suffering. And the whole idea behind God's long-suffering is that He gives us the opportunity to understand our sinfulness and then gives us an opportunity to deal with it. I'm thankful that God doesn't just judge immediately every time we do something wrong. Every time we sin, He's patient with us. Isn't that awesome? We, we don't deserve that, but He grants it to us. How about every time we do something wrong, every time we have a sinful thought, every time we had a sinful action, every time we spoke a sinful word, if God immediately judged us at that moment, oh my goodness, we'd be in a terrible state. Maybe we wouldn't even be here. But David is just claiming, he says, you and against you only have I sinned. I deserve this, but I'm thankful for your justice. Then he gives us a third objection in verse 5. He says, but if, our, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And let me just say this. Sometimes our righteousness doesn't demonstrate the righteousness of God because God is holy, God is righteous, and sometimes we are not. Do you understand that? We, we're not always the picture of Jesus that we need to be and that we should be. Over and over. So Paul's helping them understand that the question is, uh, the question is not whether or not God's righteousness is made more obvious than the unrighteousness of man, because it is. Every time we compare light with darkness, the light stands out. Every time we compare sinfulness with righteousness, the sinfulness stands out. But it makes the righteousness of God that much more appealing. That much more beautiful. But Paul gives them a response. In fact, he gives four of them. First of all, he says in verse, or in the middle of verse 5, Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? No, He's not unjust. It's a rhetorical question, but He's not unjust. And no matter what God does do concerning His judgment, we are deserving of that. We'll come back and see that in a little bit. But he apologizes from this standpoint. He says he, He's mentioning this uh, in the middle of verse 6, he says, I speak as a man. First of all, he apologized for mentioning the objection because he said, I speak only as a man. I can only use a human analogy. We are but men. We're sinful. He goes, but I really do believe that when we look at the situation, he says, the righteousness of God will flourish. The righteousness of God will stand out in contrast to man's un unrighteousness. Secondly, he says again, certainly not. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Certainly not. Of course He's not unjust. He is perfectly just. He does everything that He does with purpose and with legitimacy. Number three, He goes on to say in verse 6, Certainly not for, then how will we know God, or how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased, 
through my life to His glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? Well, thirdly, on this thought, no one could be judged of God if that's the case. But we are all deserving of that. And then he gives one more. Fourthly, and this is, I think, where we all need to put ourselves into the text. Verse 8 says, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is what? Just. In other words, whatever judgment that they would receive, whatever condemnation that they would be under, it was deserving and more. Because if every one of us got what we truly deserved, we'd be spending eternity in hell. Amen? That's what we deserve. But God's justice is just. Because He is a God of mercy. Because He is a God of grace. Because He does exercise mercy. People deserve the condemnation that they are under. We'd be deserving of that, according to the text. So here's the conclusion he comes to. Verses 9. He says, What then? Are we better than they? No, we're not better than they. We're not. The issue has never been equality. It was never about are we on the same playing field. Because God says, you are the apple of my eye. You are my chosen people. The bottom line is He did show grace over and over and over again to His people. But the issue is not equality. The issue is, are we all under the same judgment? Yes. Because it's not about the outward actions. It's about the condition of the heart. And that's what we oftentimes overlook. And he says, for uh, middle of verse 9, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are what? All under sin. So we're all under the same judgment. As is written, there's none righteous. No, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none that does good. No, not one. Let's stop there just for a moment. So when we start looking at all these verses, and we've been talking about the law and the differences between the Jew and the Gentile, and that we're all under the same judgment, and that God's going to judge everybody fairly and justly, how does that apply to where we live in 2021? You ever thought about that? What in the world, what application can we make from God's Word that took place between the Jews and the Gentiles and the teaching here that would, that would some way apply to where we live today? Let me draw just a couple of applications, parallels, if you will. I think so often we're very much like the Jewish people in our conduct, in our thinking, in how we live life. You see, the Jewish people knew that they were special. They had the law. It was given to them. I mean, it wasn't given to the Gentiles. It was given to them. They were the recipients. And guess what? They knew it inside and out. They knew the feasts. They knew the celebrations. They knew the guidelines. They practiced them out of duty. They had all the rules and regulations down pat in their minds. They're better than everyone else. How in the world can we be similar to the Gentiles? I think sometimes we kind of look at these circumstances and we say, yeah, we got the Bible. I'm a Christian. You're not. (laughs) I'm better than you. I know the, I, I even know verses. Uh, in, in fact, uh, we're, we're, we're better than you because I've memorized certain passages. I go to church. I even give to the needs of the church. I help the poor and help the needy and 
well, I'm just a little bit better than you because you don't quite understand, and I, I have this, and you don't. I mean, in fact, not only have I had it, I've had it for a long time. I, I, I trusted in Jesus when I was a little child. And for all these years, I've been doing this, this, and this, and you haven't. But you'll get there someday, maybe. Anybody ever met that person? I have. Anybody ever been that person? I have. The reality is, if we're not careful, we can kind of think that we're better than someone else, that we're a little bit more holier than that other person, a little more righteous than the other person, because we have something they don't. And the bottom line is, God comes back and says, wait a minute, yes, you're the apple of my eye. You are my chosen people. I did give you the law and the word first. But the reality is, you're all under sin. You're all under sin. You all need a Savior. You all will be judged the same. And if we're not careful, we can be like the Jewish in our conduct. We ought to be better than that. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are sinful people. That's why he goes back and says, as is written, there is none righteous. How many does none mean? None. Zero. None of us are good enough. In fact, the reality is, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world. We're all sinners. Romans 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, there's nothing you can do about that sinfulness that you're born into. Ephesians 2 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest you be like a Jew and can boast. Because I got the law. And I follow the rules and regulations. Bottom line is, we are all under God's judgment. And as such, we had to fall on our knees before God and beg for His forgiveness. And live the life that he's called us to live. I think one of the, uh, the most difficult things to deal with in churches across America is familiarity. The longer you're in church, the longer you attend services, it seems like the more we become isolated to the things that are in the world and the people that are in the world. And if we're not careful... We have no dealings with them because, well, that, they're just a sinful world and we don't have anything to do with them. Truth? And if we're not careful, this is our, this is our world right here. We don't go outside this world. We, this is our world. We don't go outside these walls because that's not our world. This is our world. And we brag in what we know and what we do and what we have become more than what God is trying to do in and through us. Remember, it's not equality. I can go through the law, practice it, implement it, make it known, follow all the rules and guidelines, go through circumcision, and be, say, well, hey, I'm a Jew amongst all Jews, circumcised the eighth day, and blah, 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 blah. And if we're not careful, we overlook the condition of our own heart. God is concerned about our heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's our heart that sometimes stinks. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Desperately wicked. He says, who can know it? 
Because our pride is so strong sometimes. Our flesh is so obvious sometimes. And he comes back in verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? We are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, well, that we say this. And he says, their condemnation is just. Are we better? No. He goes on, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and they, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Which side do you want to be on? I want to be on the side whose heart is walking with God. Whose heart is right before God. Acknowledging who I am before a holy and righteous God. We're not better than the world. We're blessed. We have the hope of heaven. And what greater gift could we extend to the world around us than to know, other than to know that hope for themselves? Simple passage this morning. We're all under the same judgment. And I think if there's a lesson to learn in it, it's like to avoid spiritual pride that the Jewish were demonstrating. I'm better. No, you're not. Why well, have the law? It doesn't matter. Why well, have circumcised? It doesn't matter. You're all under the same judgment. And God wants us to make sure our heart is right. Is your heart right before God? Lord, we thank you, Lord, for what you have done in our hearts and our lives. We do thank you, God, for offering us the gift of salvation. God, we thank you for not just making this world and then disappearing on us, leaving us to suffer the consequences of our choices, though we often under that influence of having to do that. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts to make sure, Lord, our hearts are right before you, that we would avoid the spiritual pride, God, would you draw us closer to you this day? His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And just a simple message this morning. Is there spiritual pride in your heart? Because you go to church, because you know the truth, because you practice the word, is your heart in the right spot? Say, Pastor, if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, there's some pride. I'm not like them. I don't do what they do. I don't talk how they talk. Maybe some pride has slept in. Maybe pride has crept in and has skewed your view. Say, Pastor, if I'm honest with myself, there's some issues of pride i got to deal with this morning. Anyone like that? Yes. Yes, yes. How would God have you to respond? Simple example of the Jews and the Gentiles at odds with each other, one thinking they're better than the other because they got the law, because they were circumcised. Pride. Thinking we're better than we are. Thinking we're better than others. 
because of what we do or say or have. Say, Pastor, if I'm honest with myself, there's pride that needs to be dealt with anyone else this morning. Can I invite you that raise your hand, your heart to the Lord just to take a moment and pray that God would cleanse your heart. He says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know that we serve a God who is quick to forgive when we are quick to repent. Lord, forgive us as a church even for thinking that we're better than others, for thinking that we know more. Lord, to realize that we are all under the same judgment. But we are thankful for your love, your mercy, your grace. And I pray, God, that you would continue to grow us, Lord, into the image of your Son. Lord, that we would truly be humble and be grateful and thankful each day, Lord, for the gift of salvation that you've given to us and the privilege of walking in your footsteps, Lord. God, would you speak to our hearts this morning again, afresh as we go our separate ways? Lord, we want to be a picture of Jesus in this world that we live in. We are deserving of the harshest judgment. And yet, God, we are grateful for your mercy and grace and your justice. Would you work in our hearts to draw us closer to you? Be if each one to raise their hand, their heart towards you this morning, Lord, that you would continue to to do a work in their lives as only you can. We'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.